we are going to do most of Exodus 1 and Exodus 2, because we're going to, this semester, do the life of Moses. I had an opportunity um, to have a little getaway with some of our leaders. We have about 30, 35 uh, students that are part of our leadership team, and they're awesome. And I asked all the students what they were excited about, what they were nervous about as the semester begins. And it was great, actually, because I'm preaching on the life of Moses. The life of Moses is about a journey that just seems to aimlessly go this way and that way. It's about a guy who really didn't deserve in any sort of way to be a leader, to be somebody that God would use to deliver his people and change the world. And I think it's a, a message that's so important and relevant for this season of life where you all find yourself. I mean, I've lived in Nashville a long time. This is actually the 20th year that I've been doing RUF at Belmont. And yeah, it's fun. Usually in air conditioning. Yeah, that's all right. But um, we're going to have a, a celebration in, in next semester, so you all can be part of that. It'll be fun. But one of the things that's interesting is Nashville is a place where people often feel like God's called them to be here, and then things don't really work out like they thought it would. And I don't know what your week or two weeks of being here in Nashville, some of you guys are brand new here, and maybe you know, you're like, well, no, man, everything's great. Uh, this was my dream to be here, to be at Belmont, to be in Nashville. Everything's great. I just love it. I love all the people. I love everything that's going on. And some of you... Maybe not you, maybe your roommates, maybe some friends, maybe people you've met this week are really struggling. They're in the middle of, oh my gosh, what have I done? Where am I? I thought God led me here, and now everything seems to be falling apart. I'm not sure I even want to be here. I'm not sure I know how to hear God's will. I don't even know what's going on. Listen, the message that God gives to us through the book of Exodus is an extremely important and comforting message for people that aren't sure where God is leading them. And honestly, the way perfectionism is so rampant in our culture, and particularly among students, even if you think you know where God's leading you, you're not absolutely sure, and so therefore you're tortured by it. <laughs> now, I'm going to do a convo at some point this semester on knowing God's will, that maybe can help with that a little bit. But I do think this is such a great book, and I'm excited to dig into it because I think it really is the message that is going to be so helpful for where we're at right now. So, the life of Moses. It's a, it's a, a fascinating story. It starts out with a real shock. And we're going to pick up the reading at verse 6. If you have a Bible, or if you have a Bible on your phone, Exodus chapter 1 it's the second book in the Bible, Genesis and then Exodus, and we're going to start at verse 6, okay? Now, this story, some of this story will probably be familiar to you, but there's some important verses that we want to make sure we read the whole story. And it starts out with this way. It actually starts with sort of a shock, if you know the backstory, and I'm going to explain that in a second, but it starts this way. Joseph was already in Egypt, and we're going to talk about why Joseph was in Egypt, because that's important to understand this. Verse 6, then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt 
who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over the Israelites to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithon and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more the Israelites multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the ones that helped them have babies, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah. When you serve as midwife, to the, to the Hebrew, sorry, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, in other words, if they have a son, you kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God, so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, a man from the house of Levi, this is an Israelite tribe, went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the, nurse, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, killed him, and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, fighting. And he, Moses said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? The man answered, who made you a prince? And a judge over us. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? 
Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing that I've done is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, sorry, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. During those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and he knew. God knew. Now, there's three things that I basically want to draw out of this passage for us tonight. The first is the shock. This story, the story of Exodus opens with a shock. And here's where it is. Moses, sorry, Joseph was already in Egypt. Do you remember how Joseph got to Egypt, how Israel got to Egypt? They got there because Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery. Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. He ended up in Egypt. Then, eventually, famine came to the area where Joseph's family was. And to save their lives, they fled to Egypt. And what do you know? When they get to Egypt, God has raised up Joseph to be the guy in charge of food distribution. So... The Israelites got to Egypt because God brought them there. As a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 50, when Joseph's brothers come before him, not even recognizing him, they come before him begging for food, Joseph realizes they're his brothers, the one who sold him into slavery. He reveals himself to them. They're freaking out. And what does Joseph say to them? Does anybody remember? He says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. That is such an important theme to understand the book of Exodus. Because one of the key elements and themes in this story is what God intends prevails. God's people are in Egypt because What Joseph's brothers intended for evil, God intended for good. And yet now, they're in the place that God brought them. And they're suffering. They're in slavery. They're miserable. They're in the place that God brought them, very specifically, very clearly. And yet they're suffering. Has anybody got a problem with that? Does that bother you? I mean, if there was ever a time when Israel was, I hate this phrase, but I'm going to use it, smack dab in the middle of God's will. It's a stupid phrase. It is. It's nowhere in the Bible, right? And it just brings oppressive pressure upon you. But if there ever was a time that somebody was smack dab in the middle of God's will, it would be Israel in Egypt. And yet they're in slavery and they're suffering. Perhaps we need to revise what a lot of Christians tend to believe, which is, as long as you're following God's will, things work out well. I don't know where people have gotten that idea. It's not a biblical idea. And the sooner that you're disavowed of that silly idea, the better your life will be. Oh, you may still be suffering. But if you think that your suffering is incompatible with God being at work in your life, 
and with God leading you to be somewhere, well, then your suffering is going to be twice as difficult. It really is true. God's people are in the place he bled them, and they're suffering. And some of you guys are here, and you're thinking, my gosh, this is harder than I thought it was going to be. Thought God, you know, brought me to Belmont, and I, you know, I'm, I'm reeling. I've already changed my major three times, and we're only like two weeks into this. <laughs> you know, the average student changes majors how many times? Like four, yeah. And the average person changes careers at least five or six times in the course of your life, which is why don't worry about what you major in. It's not going to be the career for the rest of your life, most likely. I know mine isn't, you know. Don't worry about it. But we do worry about it. And we wrestle with it and we go, I thought God led me here. Why is this so hard? Here's what you need to understand. Hard stories are where God leads his people all the time. Please don't assume that when things are hard or when you're suffering that somehow you must have missed God's will and don't assume that he must have abandoned you. You see, God's will and suffering are typically inseparable. It certainly was that way for Jesus. Certainly was that way for Jesus. You see, God's greatest, most important stories are the ones where his will prevails through suffering, not by avoiding it. And that leads us to the next important point, the hope that runs through this story. So it starts with a shock, but then there's a hope that runs through it. And here's the hope of this story. Nothing can thwart God's plan. Nothing. And the way that God shows that he shows this often in Old Testament stories, is through the use of irony. Irony points to the way God has absolute control over everything, even when people don't recognize it. Irony, you see, is, is where you see God's sovereign hand bringing an unexpected but amazingly appropriate resolution. Irony, I would go so far as to say, hints at the fact that God is committed to bringing all things to a good and fitting conclusion. It hints at this hope and this longing that's built into your heart. It says in Ecclesiastes that God set eternity in the hearts of all men and women. He's given you a longing for things to work right, for things to be as they were, beautiful. Righteous, without sin. And every time you see God work something out in sort of this ironic way where it's like, I never would have saw that coming, but it's so perfect the way that worked. You get a taste of God's sovereign power. It's almost like he delights to just give us these little tastes. Let me show you some of them in this passage. God is sovereign over Egypt. But Egypt is the world's greatest superpower at the time. Right? But look at verse 10 of chapter 1. Verse 10 says, that Pharaoh says this, Come, let us deal shrewdly with these Israelites, lest they multiply. We've got to stop them multiplying. So we better come up with a plan so they quit multiplying. That's verse 10. That's Pharaoh's plan. That's what his kingdom is depending on. But look at what happens in verse 12. But the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Pharaoh says... Let's come up with a plan lest they multiply. God says, be fruitful and multiply. And God's will prevails. Right? In spite of the persecution, in spite of the attempted genocide, God's people are still multiplying. 
It's actually an echo of God's command in the garden. God's saying, I've created a people to be fruitful and multiply, to take my good cultivated creation, spread it to the entire cosmos. I know sin came into the world. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, but God never gave up on his plan to restore all things, to bring about all the God-glorifying potential that he built into his creation. That's why you study medicine. That's why you study business. That's why you study science. That's why you study everything. Because God has all kinds of good work for us to do. And even though God's people are in slavery in Egypt, he's still bringing this covenantal blessing that's part of the created order. A blessing they don't even deserve because of their sin, and yet he's still blessing them and helping them even be reminded of what he made them for. Just to be blessed, to be fruitful, and to multiply. And it doesn't matter what Pharaoh wants to do about it. And notice the way God uses the most unlikely heroes to accomplish his purpose. You've got Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. He's never named. He's never named. He doesn't even have a name in this story. But who gets named? Hebrew slave women. In a world, in a culture where women were regarded as property, God speaks these women's names and triumphs over the greatest superpower by two Hebrew midwives. Isn't that amazing? You, it's almost like God just says, look at what I can do. I don't even have to try. Like, I don't have to, I don't have to part the Red Sea every day. Like, I've got these, these midwives. They're awesome. And I'm, I'm just going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to raise them up to defy Pharaoh. And they're going to prevail. And then God says, well, throw all the kids into the Nile. Well, look at what happens to Moses. He does get thrown into the Nile. But it doesn't work out the way Pharaoh thought, does it? Right? God uses civil disobedience of the midwives. He uses the shrewdness of Moses' mom and sister to accomplish his plan. And God seems to take delight in showing how how he can just work things out. There's a place in the Psalms where it says, God holds the heart of the king in his hand like water and directs it which way it will go. If there was ever anybody who seemed like they could do whatever the heck they wanted in the ancient world, it was a king. And the Bible says, no, God directs your heart this way or that. He's sovereign. Look at this. He works it out so that Moses' actual mother gets paid to nurse her own child. And that, like, some of you guys laughed, and you should. This is hilarious. It really is. I don't know if you, like, this is supposed to make you laugh. If, 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 if you know Middle Eastern storytelling, it's a great art, and there is comedy built in here. This is, like, so crazy. Who would do it this way? Who would think this? God does it this way to show that he works out everything just as he wants to. There's a great uh, Bible commentator, Alec Mortier. He says this way, Pharaoh intends to kill sons so that his kingdom will prevail, but God uses daughters to protect the son who will deliver Israel. And he gives them names, calls them by names. And then look at this even more specifically. God brings salvation through an ark. Now, you may not notice that because your English translations say basket. 
But the Hebrew word there is ark, and it's an important word to notice because here's the thing about arks. You remember the first ark in the Bible? It's before this. It's earlier in the story. It's back in Genesis. It's with Noah. The key thing about arks is that you can't steer an ark. When you're put inside of an ark to save you from judgment, what happens is it goes wherever God wants it to go. And you submit yourself to what God is going to do. That's the way arks work. Moses' mom knows the story. Once again, she's in trouble. And once, what she decides to do is to put her son in an ark. And this time, she doesn't just sort of leave it there for the rain. Now, in this story, she actually puts the ark in the Nile River. Why is that significant? Because the Nile River is a god in Egypt, one of the most powerful, important gods. So not only does she put her precious baby in an ark, she puts it in the Nile River, and it doesn't matter. God does what he wants and is not thwarted. And Moses is delivered and saved through an ark. Now, you know what's really cool is that later in Moses' life, God's going to command him to make another ark. There are three arks in the Bible. Noah, this basket, and then the Ark of the Covenant. And you know what's going to happen with the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant, God is going to tell Moses to put some stuff in it. You know what he puts in the Ark of the Covenant? He puts the staff. The staff, we're going to see when we get to the plagues, the staff is God's judgment. It's the rod that he uses to pronounce judgment upon the gods of Egypt and on their unbelief. It's God's power manifest. It goes in the ark. The manna, the heavenly bread, the bread of life goes in the ark. The word of God. Now you've seen like, you know, the Charlton Heston movie where there are two tablets for the Ten Commandments. It doesn't actually say that in the Bible. It says that there were two copies, one for God and one for man, like you would make a contract and have two copies. Israel's copy goes in the Ark of the Covenant. So in the Ark of the Covenant, do you understand what's going on here, the symbolism? In the Ark of the Covenant is God himself. God himself puts himself in the Ark of the Covenant, foreshadowing the salvation that will come when God in the person of Jesus submits to God's will and goes not where he wants to go, but where God takes him on a cross. The arcs are always connected to salvation, and they're always connected to God's sovereignty. God can be trusted, you see, because he himself has submitted to God's will and wrought salvation for his people. You know, uh, some of you guys know 10 years ago, my wife and I, we adopted a little girl from China. And um, it was awesome, amazing experience and um, a blessing every day. I mean, she's just amazing. And one of the things that happens when you adopt a little girl from China is you become more familiar with the whole situation in China, the one-child policy, and all these different things. You hear different stories, especially when you go over there for a few weeks. And one of the things that's fascinating is that we were told by our guides and by the, the people that work with the adoptive families over in China that generally 
It's the Christian families that abandon their children in public places because of the one-child policy. The one-child policy, now it's being relaxed a little now, especially in rural areas where people need more people to help on the farm. Um, but what often happens is, is most of the babies that are unwanted or can't be kept are aborted or turned out. It's generally the Christian families that abandon their children in public places. And the guide said, and you know, most of the time, you can be sure that if the child is put in a basket and abandoned at a shopping center or a bus station, the mom is nearby watching to make sure that that child will get reported to the authorities and will end up in the orphanage. But you know what's really amazing? When we went to the American consulate, which you have to go to the consulate in Guangzhou to finish, to take an oath, and that's when she becomes our daughter and becomes a U.S. citizen. And then they told us, now when you walk out of here, after you go through this ceremony, there's going to be a crowd of people. It's almost like you're going to walk through this gauntlet of people on the other sides of this fence, peering, trying to catch a glimpse. And you're like, why? And the tour guide told us because a lot of those moms come day after day and stand down there at the U.S. consulate hoping to catch a glimpse of the child that they've had to give up. Oh, can you imagine? Can you imagine? It's almost unimaginable to think about the trust involved in giving up your own child. What it meant for Moses' mother to give him up, to put him in an ark, trusting God. But God is trustworthy. Not just because he delivered Moses. Oh, no. Like I said, it's almost unimaginable to imagine what it must be like for a mom to give up her child, to watch somebody else pick up the child. And it's interesting how many Chinese moms end up getting hired to be nurses for their own children in the orphanages. That happens a lot, too. It's almost this parallel, this story. It's going on even now. But listen, God knows what it's like to give up his son. He knows what it's like. He knows what it feels like. He did it himself. And so when you're struggling to trust God, don't just remember the story of Moses being delivered from the Nile River. Remember that God himself gave up his own son. If you're struggling to trust God, remember that. But remember something else. I want to show you one more last thing in this story. If you're struggling tonight to trust God, if you're full of fear, if you've done things you're so ashamed of, that you believe must forever disqualify you from being able to be used by God, then you need to see the next part of this story. Because not even the weakness and sin of God's servant Moses can thwart God's plan either. Egypt can't thwart God's plan, but neither can Moses. Again, you see God's sovereignty in the fact that even though Moses murders an Egyptian, has to flee to the desert, it doesn't thwart God's plan. And again, irony comes in there. Moses goes out, he sees these two Hebrews fighting, and one of them says, who made you a prince over us? But don't you see the irony? It's exactly what God's intending to do, is to make Moses a prince over them. But Moses has to learn, and we have to see, that Moses is not going to deliver God's people by might, by power. And so you end up with this crazy situation. It seems like everything has fallen apart. It's often that way when God's at work. Moses gets all of this training 
in Pharaoh's household. He's at home with the Egyptians and with the Hebrews. Seems like the perfect guy for God to use to bring about a resolution. But for all his unique training, we find him sitting in the desert, an 80-year-old shepherd. That's, that's how Genesis or Exodus chapter 2 ends. It starts out with God's people are in, are in misery. They're in slavery. God's going to do something about it. He hears their groaning. Chapter 2 ends with God's deliverer, 80 years old, hiding in a desert, herding sheep. That's a crazy story. But you know, so often God's ways emerge out of what looks like disaster. And God specializes in delivering in what looks like impossible situations. God isn't done with Moses. He's not done with you. He delights in using weak people. And we see this most clearly in Jesus. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 5, I almost preached this tonight, but I decided to do, just get into the story of Moses itself. But Jesus said, at one point he's arguing with the Pharisees. How, how do you understand the Bible? Jesus had lots of arguments with people. It's actually interesting. When you see the arguments of Jesus, you actually figure out what he really cares about and what really matters. So don't run away from the arguments of Jesus. They're actually very helpful. But what you find in John chapter 5, Jesus says, you guys, you Jewish leaders, love to read Moses. Let me tell you, Moses wrote about me. If you don't read Moses as writing about me, you don't understand Moses. Now, I don't know, some of you are probably taking Old Testament, and you might get a different perspective than that. You might even get a perspective that you can't even trust any of this stuff because this Life of Moses stuff came from a, you know, a bunch of books that got compiled together by some. It, if you've ever heard that idea or you hear that idea, let me just tell you this. We can talk about it over coffee. I've got lots of reasons why I think that there's um, reasons to be skeptical of that. But I also put on the Belmont RUF Facebook group like a two-page paper with some of the arguments that might be helpful to you in thinking critically about that idea. So there's that for you. But here's the thing. Jesus says, Moses is writing about me. Moses is foreshadowing Jesus in this way. You see, Jesus, too, was born under the threat of death with a maniacal ruler intent on killing all the boy babies. It's Herod. Satan sometimes repeats his, his methods over and over again. You realize? But once again, Jesus is spared by God's power, just as Moses was. Jesus, too, had to flee to the desert. He did. He had to run down to Egypt, of all places, to escape. He was rejected by his own people that he came to rescue, just like Moses. And finally, as Jesus breathed his last hanging on a cross, it looked to everyone like God's plans had come to utter ruin. But the story didn't end there. Take heart, Jesus, God specializes in using the most unlikely of saviors and the most likely, unlikely of means. Jesus said, again, if you believe Moses, you believe me because he wrote about me. This story doesn't just tell us about Moses, guys. It tells us about God. And look at the last two verses, four verbs that are so powerful. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That's powerful stuff. If we believed that, really believed that about God, what a difference it would make in our life. 
And let me tell you, the best reason to believe that is because Jesus came and lived and died in our place. Because God saw, God remembered, God knew. If you're struggling to believe, to trust, the life of Moses is a good study. I hope you'll stick with us. I hope you hang out with us. I hope it will all come to, to rejoice in these words of Martin Luther, which I think kind of capture the whole thing, what we said tonight. I'll close with this. Martin Luther said one time, I know not where he leads, but well do I know my guide. I know not where he leads, but well do I know my guide. God has given us his word, not so that we could figure out what we're supposed to do from this day to that day, what we're supposed to major in, who we're supposed to marry. You won't find that in the Bible, but you will find ample, ample food for what you really need to know which is your guide, and deepen in that relationship with him.